Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Today, I'd like to sing the praises of actors. Their lives may seem cushy and glamorous, but it takes amazing work and dedication to get to a place where you can make your living playing roles on the screen. First of all, it is pretty psychologically challenging. You have to be deep enough and sensitive enough to convincingly play a wide range of emotions and yet strong and resilient enough to face rejection from every direction. You're judged by how you look. Are you getting wrinkles? Did you gain a few pounds? Is your hair thinning? And your life becomes an open book. If you are lucky enough to attain recognizable status, it is hard to live a normal life. Having worked with many notable actors from Michael Jackson to Angelina Jolie and beyond, I've seen lives lived in public, surrounded by paparazzi and fans and spotlights. You have to have a sensitive constitution to portray emotionally demanding roles, but the hide of a rhinoceros to withstand petty jealousies and rejection and living under a microscope. For all of the work that goes on behind the scenes on a film set, from the writer to the director and all of the hardworking crew, it's the actors who have to physically bear themselves to the audience. They represent us. They are the center of the stories we tell, the public face, the ones who have to carry us through the story from beginning to end. It requires both strength and vulnerability. As a director, you're fortunate to find actors with whom you discover a kinship, both personally and creatively, that make life on a film set easier to navigate and sparking a creative union that leads to a shorthand to getting the job done at its best. When you see an actor showing up in multiple films by a particular director, you know they have discovered that invaluable creative bond. I've been lucky enough to work multiple times with several really talented actors who are also terrific people to spend time with on a set. It makes the work better and the conditions so much more enjoyable. I've worked with Henry Thomas three times, Matt Frewer six times, Annabeth Gish, Melissa George, Melissa Kreider, Dan Martin, and several others repeatedly because it makes life and the work so much better. Another actor I've worked with more than once is the Candyman himself, Tony Todd. He played the demon Othakai in my Masters of Horror film, Valerie on the Stairs, and was in two episodes I directed of the Dead of Summer TV series, and I'm so happy to host him here today. We'll dig into his impressive life on screen after this. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been 40 years now, and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, 
present and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to, well, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15% off your subscription. That's Fangoria.com, promo code POSTMORTEM to save 15%. Sacrifices must be made. Fangoria's newest movie, Satanic Panic, starring Rebecca Romine and Jerry O'Connell, is now available on video on demand. Sam, a pizza delivery girl at the end of her financial rope, has to fight for her life and her tips when her last order of the night turns out to be high-society Satanists in need of a virgin sacrifice. Directed by Chelsea Stardust and written by Grady Hendrix, Birth, Movies, Death calls Satanic Panic an absolutely entertaining horror film that will satisfy any viewer's need for monsters and mayhem. See it now on VOD. Crawl is out now on digital. Sink your teeth into this year's most intense horror film that critics are calling entertaining as hell. Producer Sam Raimi, the horror mastermind behind Don't Breathe and the Evil Dead movies, teams up with friend of the podcast director Alexandra Aja of The Hills Have Eyes to bring you this relentless, nerve-rattling creature feature. Crawl combines your most primal human fears, confined spaces, fear of drowning, and an onslaught of could-be-anywhere alligators. Certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, get the action-packed thriller with a nasty bite on digital now. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. I just wanted to let you know that the Blu-ray for Stephen King's The Stand, the miniseries that King and I collaborated on, is now available. This is something I never thought would happen, but Paramount and CBS Home Entertainment really put a lot of love and passion into reconstructing it, going back to the negative and putting it together for the first time in high definition. It looks better than it has ever looked, and I think you'll love it. So if you are a fan of the miniseries, please check it out. So you and I have the same birthday. That's right. Yeah, I, I forgot about that. Yeah, we I talked did too. about it on Dead of Summer. It, and then, man, and then, that's so. right. Crazy so, Sagittarians. That's and the it. Moose. It's we'll right. talk about that. Yeah, definitely. So you go way back. You come at acting from an academic sense. Uh, you were a scholarship student at the University of Connecticut, right? Well, uh, yes, but I only lasted there a year. I see. And um, there was a great. Uh, set design teacher there named Jerry Rojo that had built this wonderful play space called the Mobius Theater, which mm. is basically, if you think of a jungle gym that had platforms and uh, not on the same level, some raked down, some raked up. And we did every Sam Shepard play that we could get our hands oh, on wow. in this funky space. So even though University of Connecticut was in, this is before the basketball program took off. Otherwise, mm -hmm. I might have stuck around a little longer. Ah, okay. Um, but there, Sports versus drama. Hmm. It's the same thing. <laughs> ah, okay. But uh, 
yeah, I actually hung, you know, this is the 70s, and I was young and, you know, trying to let my hair grow and wearing bell-bottom pants. And <laughs> I remember I, those days. <laughs> you remember those? <laughs> then I dropped out, but I stuck around campus for like two years because they had a great blues bar called Shabu Inn, where for $5, I saw people like Miles Davis, Eric Clapton, wow. everybody, Todd Rundgren, everybody oh, came wow. to this place, okay? Buddy Guy, it was a, a Junior Parker, uh, and the beers for 75 cents, but I was still doing underground theater, right? Like cutting nice. edge stuff, you know, almost protest-like. And well, this was a very politically active th- time. It, was, it certainly was. It was uh, Vietnam War was ending down. Black Panther movement had surged out. You know, we had lost so many of our rock icons yeah. during the 60s at the 27 Club. Yeah. Uh, it was craziness. And yeah. then finally, this one actress that I was um, seeing uh, came, gave me a brochure for this program called the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center. Right. which is in Waterford, Connecticut. And I said, I don't have any money. And this and is a highly regarded organization. Yeah, I, I, and I was kind of a black hippie. I said, I ain't <laughs> got no money. And I, I wasn't smart enough to, you know, sell pounds of weed or anything like that. <laughs> or maybe too smart. <laughs> or maybe too smart. I wasn't a criminal. And uh, she said, no, you got to go see them. And I went, I called him and said, hey, I didn't tell him I didn't have money. I said, hey, you know, I heard you got a great program. (laughs) And I went up there, and for some reason, somebody had told them about that I was raw, but I guess tall and, uh, you know, uh, straight. And and I I said, okay. I said, but I don't have any money. And they said, we're going to give you a full scholarship. Wow. Just want you to pay it forward. Okay. Now this program had people. George White was ahead of it. Lloyd Richards, who wrote, who directed the original *Raisin in the Sun* on Broadway. Uh, we started our days doing fencing at 5 a.m. with George White. Okay. Wow. But we're all like everybody else in the program had was in a legitimate college, and this was a year program away from their academic studies. Me, I'm just like guy freelancing, kind of the oldest guy there by a year. <laughs> and I think I was 24 at the time. And fencing, acrobatics, gymnastics, set design, four different acting teachers, four different directing teachers. Just, wow. And I took it by storm. What an education. What an, And in one year period. And then I met Larry Eric, who was a famous Broadway director. He was starting a program called Trinity Rep Conservatory. And all the girls were flacking. He would come in Mondays. They would sit you know, at his feet near the fireplace. And he called me aside. He said, listen, I got my eye on you. I'm starting a new program. I said, I ain't got no money. (laughs) He says, I'm going to give you a full scholarship. Wow. So those two fortuitous things set me on the academic path. Well, it was fortuitous, but you also had the talent that they wanted you there. They saw something raw. Yeah. They saw something raw. But I was always disappointing the musical people because we had Alfred Drake. Uh, you know, was did I don't know twenty Broadway shows. Uh, uh, he would look at me and say, "You know, it's too bad you can't hold a note. <laughs> you'd be a great Broadway leading man." I said, wow, no, I'm great. He says, "But you're going to be all right." I said, "Okay." At this point, I wasn't even thinking film, TV. I was just in the mode, 
you know, being in that hippie moment, had hair yeah. like yours. <laughs> it was a happening. Yeah. The happenings, man. Yeah, it was a time. Yeah, that was an amazing time. I it was, was a rock amazing. journalist in those days. Were you? I was in a band in the 70s. Oh, man. Did you, did you, because I was a little young for Woodstock. Did you do that? I was not at Woodstock. I was a little young for that, too. Yeah, but, we, we were like by two years, I think, you yeah, know? Yeah, we're just a couple years apart, but... But, um, you know, it was an exciting time because everything went. It was freedom. You know, people dressed the way they did to express themselves, not to be fashionable. Not, yeah, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a bearded time of, you know, if you had a beard, it was fine because you wouldn't see 20 other people with beards, you know. Right, right. But everybody kind of did their own thing. Racially, in the early 70s, there was much more connection, sadly, than there is now. Okay. It was a fantastic time <laughs> of awareness. Of awareness, of social acceptance, of uh, political change. You know, we all were optimistic about the future. Yeah, and, yeah. and uh, we had reason believe, to be. Whether you believed we actually landed on the moon or not, we said <laughs> it's there. <laughs> yes. But the opportunities we gave ourselves were endless, and people were open-minded, and people were seeing, you know... Uh, Open minded utopian is a good thing. world. We were living in a utopia. Yeah. I it mean, it's true. But, uh, but you got to remember, this was a time when we didn't actually have a mass shooting every month. Right. Okay. Right. I remember the first time that, well, the nurses in Chicago, uh, mm-hmm. Richard Speck, thing, Richard that, Speck, yeah. That was the first thing. And then the guy in Texas. Those are the two events. Right. That from any, the tower and the, the tower, The Texas yeah. Towers. Yeah. That was it. Other than our presidential and political leader assassinations. Yes. But those were personal. The stuff that goes on now is just, you know, my daughter, who's 28, I talk to her like every other day trying to get her to get out of a sense of hopelessness that her and her generation are feeling because they don't trust anybody. And one thing we had then is that we, if, if I met you in a bar and you were digging the same music I was, I would trust you until you proved untrustworthy. Absolutely. I mean, we didn't trust our politicians. No, we never did. Um, you know, <laughs> that's the reason that this movement happened. Yeah. Uh, but it opened things up racially and as far as um, gender issues and all mm-hmm. these things that came to the fore, women's rights. Everything. It, it, it was. Gay we rights. were the first generation who weren't pursuing what our parents did. Right. It was oh, a breaking the away generation. Yeah, uh, it was great, and because of that, it fueled you. If you were a creative artist, whether you were a painter, sculptor, pianist, director, actor, you were being fed by all of this social phenomenon. And I think that was the difference. And I know that I'm only who I am by all the multiple conversations I've had with just so many multidimensional people. Right. You know. Right. Uh, well, it changed Hollywood, too, at that time. You know, the studios thought they knew what they were doing. Then along comes Easy Rider in 1969. Right. And the studio heads were going, huh? we don't know what I to feed what, what this young that? audience. Right. And so all of these people got opportunities to make studio movies who right. nobody would ever imagine. You know, the inmates were running the asylum. Exactly. And it was a great time. It was a great time. I remember, you know, you had... Uh, I mean, the first movie that really showed me the future was Bonnie and Clyde. Yes. I remember seeing that at the Strand Theater in Hartford, Connecticut, where I grew mm. up. 
and I sat there for four four showings of it. Wow. I never seen anything like that. It, <laughs> I was, mean, it was incredible. Just... <laughs> Arthur Penn brought this brought, uh, this ballet of of violence. It, it was that, poetic. Yes, the scene with Gene Hackman and Estelle Parson, you know, during the incredible. last shootout, and they're running around and just navigating that. I said, "Wow, I need to do that." And Midnight Cowboy was also yep, very much cathartic. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it was really an amazing time. Well, all these great actors yeah. got their start. Yeah. And they were just like us, only they were out here in Hollywood. And <laughs> you didn't have to be pretty and beautiful. No, man, everybody. Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, you know, yeah. just be good and just be dedicated. And interesting. And interesting. Yeah. Without playing interesting. Right. Being it. Yeah. And and there was a, a veracity about acting that mm-hmm. was kind of fresh it, you know it was being because the camera is so intimate right you can't don't play have, don't to overdo. the bleachers anymore right right yeah and it's just you know it took me a while once i started getting into the film i was doing i did a film in africa nairobi uh called the last elephant john lithgow mm. uh myself um uh just the the daughter of uh of the famous uh, Isabella Rossellini. Oh, my. Okay. And James Earl Jones. Wow. So we're in the jungle. We're there for six months. And the first couple of days, the cinematographer called me over and said, listen, you just be you, you know, just trust you. The camera isn't something you have to play to. She sees everything. Right. And once you figure that out, some people come to that naturally because they're never done theater, but you know, it's just, it's an intimacy that's so wonderful. And I don't, I don't know if the audiences all get it. Yeah. When they see something truly special and naked and raw and because let's face it, our horror fan population, mm-hmm. every year when the Oscar list comes out and I check in with them and said, I mean, you've seen, uh, Moonlight, and most of them don't. You know, that disparity between what the Academy puts out and what the people go to see? Yeah. It's terribly limiting, too, in the other way around of horror fans who only see horror movies. Yeah. Here I'm talking to my audience, but I don't mean it in an insulting way. We We, love them, but we do want to expand them. Exactly. (laughs) Expand our mind. There's a wide world of celluloid out there. Yeah. even media. even Midsummer, which came out yeah, this year, yeah. you'd be surprised how many horror fans didn't go out and support it when it was in the theater. Right. Okay, which is where we need your support if you want more quality, whether it's a horror film or any genre film. You need yep. to support it. Exactly. If it's good. So where did it start for you? Now, you are an incredibly well-adjusted guy to have been an actor all your life. Were, were your parents uh, artistic? Did they... Well encourage your endeavors here's what happened i was rescued uh at age three my mother who's still with us she's now a a born-again christian and a minister but apparently and i went to like five years psychiatry to figure this out but apparently she was very abusive to me and actually tried to throw me against a wall oh my god two according to stories tried to push me out of a car and i had a wonderful aunt her name was uh, claire elliston who couldn't have kids, word got back to her and she says, that's it, I'm coming there and I'm taking them with me. And that's what she did. And I went from that to being with her, growing up in Hartford, Connecticut. And I didn't know we were poor until I was 13, literally. Because right. she was a domestic. She was, she, her job was cleaning other people's houses. She had to put on a little white uniform. Wow. Occasionally she, she would take me with her 
and we would have to change buses and she would let me get she would give me all the dollars is buy some comic books <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i'm sitting on the couch you could get 10 for that <laughs> you know in those days you get the 25 cent 80 page yeah. giant specials and all that i was in heaven but then i noticed all these libraries i was at. i said what's that about you know and i would i would go between and uh so she always, the key to me being a black kid in the 60s and, and escaping the ghetto, she made sure every summer I was in a different program, whether it was science, uh, spending six weeks going to the Children's Museum studying science, the Boy Scouts. I actually went on my first plane trip. I was a Life Scout, two badges shy of the ego, and I went wow. to uh, Tokyo, Japan, World Jamboree. Oh, my Again, gosh. I'm on a plane. Uh, and I realized on that trip that it was like when you first go to college, uh, you can, you can change who you are or who you are perceived of right. by just saying this is who I am. Right. And I told all the kids, I'm the boss, and they believed it. Nice. <laughs> there you go. Nice. Well, you were a tall kid then. Yeah, so, but I'm the boss. I also told some you know white lies. This is Smokey Robinson, you know that song? Uh, yeah, he's my cousin. <laughs> so you were acting early. I was acting. I totally believed it. They believed it, so it was encouraging. That's great. But but all that came about because of the love that she gave me. And when I finally, I had a growth spurt in high school, shot up six inches, and uh, they wanted, they were trying to groom me for athletics, but then I couldn't move without, you know, falling over. And <laughs> an English teacher gave me a copy of Shakespeare, and then that was it. I said, I want to wow, be Wow, so this was in high school? Yeah, in the 60s, and, you know, late 60s. Right. So that's when the bug hit about performance and acceptance. You know, because you, when you're in high school, geeks, freaks, jocks creative types yeah. you know wasters yeah. so but the 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 jocks was the preferred one because they got all the girls right, right? but so, that was also the high point of their lives that it's all just, they burnt they burnt high. out after graduation <laughs> yeah, exactly. but so there i am in the creative club because at least there's girls there right yeah and, um, you know and i said i like this <laughs> how do you parlay this into making a living how do you make this a sustainable Adventure, and so I figured it out, which is great. So that turned to theater. You were in drama classes in high yeah, school. Yeah, the first the first play I auditioned for, The Curious Savage. I, I never forget it because I didn't get it. Uh, but <laughs> she said, "You're going to be the curtain puller," and I said, "Okay, great." I was so enthusiastic. I was like opening the curtain whenever it didn't even need to be open to calm Creatively. Me down. <laughs> Creatively, <laughs> she says, "Calm down, calm down." Yeah. And then the next play was Dracula. Uh, and I said, okay, it's just for a you know, a precursor to my horror career. Yeah. And I wanted to play Dracula. She didn't give me that role. Hmm. And I cried. She says, no, I need you to play Van Helsing because he oh. tells the story. And I said, but there's no mystery to Van Helsing. Hmm. The thing about Dracula, hey, the girls can't wait to see him. <laughs> <laughs> and he just shows up. Van Helsing talks too much. <laughs> but I did it, and, you know, that was my first time on stage. Wow. So, so you what were, an interesting thing. Old? Yeah, 16 Van Helsing, 16 year old Van Helsing. But we made the cover of the local newspaper. I'm there you go. That. Yeah. Awesome. The six foot five Van Helsing. Man. Yeah, with the <laughs> fake German accent. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been something to say. So, what was the first professional role that you had where you actually got paid for it? That I actually got paid for it. Okay, so after I graduated from Trinity Rep, got my master's equivalent, I moved back to my hometown, Harvard, Connecticut. 
And I said, I want to teach for at least a year so I can make sure I got everything I learned permitted. And they gave me a list of incorrigible kids. And I said, okay, and I got a community. These days, you know, you could apply for grants. We had National Endowment of the Arts, you know, and people like us could find a way to fund ourselves through a period. And I did that, and every day for a year, they came to me four days a week for three hours, and I got a, 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 an accommodation from the mayor. And then finally, I, I told them, I said, you know what? They said, no, what are we doing next year, Mr. Todd? They said, guys, uh, there's always a limit. I think I need to go to New York, because otherwise, I can, this could be a safety net for me, and mm. I need to test something. And you didn't want the safety. I never wanted safety. Yeah. And the woman I was with at the time, we had a beaten, broken down sob. And when we drove to Manhattan, I had been to Manhattan before and it was always like Wonderland to me. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you get, wow, look at that. And the car broke down like literally five blocks before her cousin's house where we were going to crash. <laughs> Next day, I get the Village Voice. I know people that may not know what the Village Voice is, but it was the Bible in New York. You got the political news. You got the advertisements, the listings at the right. clubs. And underground the, newspaper. Underground newspaper. Yeah. And in the back, though, the it was legit classifieds. Right. And I even had an actor section. This is what's happening. Uh, La Mama. um, all kinds. Anyway, I saw an ad for this company, Modern Time Theater. I ran over there the next day, uh, had some monologues stored up, and I did something for them. They hired me on the spot. Now, the wow. catch was, though, we had, to, we had to hustle the theater. We had to do this thing where we were collecting unemployment to supplement the job that they paid. But that was technically my first paid job. Wow. I think it was, I don't know, 400 a week or something. But we, it was my first time touring the country. We were doing political theater. So you actually went on tour. Yeah, yeah, in a, in a station wagon. Wow. And I was the only single male in the troop. Oh, so that must have been fun. I inherited the car. You know? <laughs> we would play places like Atlanta, San Francisco, Seattle. Fantastic. You know what I mean? I'm a kid. <laughs> yeah. So what were you, about 20 years old? Uh, 18? No, a little older than that. Maybe oh. 23 years. Okay, well, what a great opportunity yeah. to travel and do what you love. Do what I love. Except the, the two people that ran the theater, uh, they were married and they had a little baby named Ruby. And so we're all traveling together. We would order some chicken. They liked to let Ruby run around. And I would have to like protect my little pieces of food. I loved her, but don't, <laughs> I don't want her stepping in my, my, my mashed potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> so, I suffer for it. So when you first did film, uh, it must have been quite a revelation because it was so different to playing for a camera rather yeah, than an audience. Yeah, but I, I just love the joy of performance. And the actual, I mean, in my credits, I always say that Platoon is my first film. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, and again, this is an ad, and uh, it was actually back. They had two trade papers, Backstage and uh, what was the other one? Um Hollywood something, uh, show business, show business right. and back page, right. okay? And they charged you 75 cents for those. <laughs> but I saw this little ad, independent movie, shooting downtown, east side, looking for interesting types. It turned out that it was Sarah Driver, 
who was uh, married to Jim Jarmusch. Right. So Jim Jarmusch was the DP. Wow. And we did this wacky film called Sleepwalk. It was also Steve Buscemi's first film. Really? Yeah. Wow. And there we were. We were shooting weekends for four weeks on roof. There They lived in a loft downtown, rooftop, elevator shafts, you know, and... Uh, it was it was it was amazing. Had you been around production before, so you knew how it worked, or was no, this I your trial well, by fire? Well, I did two. I did two extra jobs. It took me two times to realize I did not want to be an extra. <laughs> yes. so that was just way they made us wait in a bus and you know threw some snacks. I said, no, 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 not a lot I, of respect. No, I need more respect than that. <laughs> so no, I didn't. I just but you know Jim Chalmers, this guy, he was hip yeah. and funky, and he made it comfortable. And it was like this is how it is. Okay, wasn't much pay, right. but it was pay. And it was an, a, a really great education because terrific education. You need that that step to see what the process is. And and thank God these were people. You know, the New York casting system at the time, we had people like Mary Calhoun, rest in peace, who would actually, uh, you know, she gave uh, Pacino and Boyd their breaks. She she was so, nowadays, casting here in Hollywood is a whole nother game. It's, right. unfortunately, half of them don't even know people's body of work. When, when I first came to Hollywood, I remember Sterling Hayden was sitting in the hallway on an aluminum folding chair. And I, I grew up watching movies, and I'm saying, that's the guy in Asphalt Jungle. Yes. That's Godfather. The man. Long that's Goodbye. The Long yeah. Goodbye. Dr. Strangelove. Why yeah. is he sitting in the hallway? And I went into my read. I said, Do you, the, why is Sterling? And she says, who? Okay. Oh, my God. All right. Yep. Let me take care of me. I didn't get that job either. Um <laughs> Uh, but but back in those days, Mary Calhoun, she would welcome and ask. She wanted each person to give the best side of themselves right? and talk to you, how are you, put you at ease. Because so many people have difficulty with auditioning. You oh, know, it's a tough it's thing frightening. to do. Yeah. You've got to lay it all bare. You lay, and nowadays, you know, in the early part of my career, directors would be in the room. And actors need that. You can't, yeah. it's not, you can't just do to the tape because right. you don't know what they're really looking for or what part of you they're looking for. People who haven't been in a casting session don't realize that basically you've got a casting director shooting lines to you that you respond to at a video camera. Mm-hmm. Just you by yourself, hello, my name is so-and-so, I'm this my tall, height. and I'm, mm-hmm. yeah, and, uh, and, and then it's just, okay, go, you're on. Yeah. And it's got to be, it's... And, and no matter how much you've prepared, most of the casting directors are giving you flat readings. They're not yeah. giving you anything. Most of them are not actors. Well, no, some <clears throat> half of them are, are failed actors yes. that <laughs> took this position. So right. I've, I've met some that think that they're the best actor in the room. <laughs> it's not a competition between me and you. It's about giving the best performance. Exactly. So it's it's tough. Uh, but you know, when I first came out here, directors were in the room. And that's yeah. so much better, all you directors listening. We need to see you. We need your feedback. We need to feel you, you know? Well, you want to give, also you want to give an actor an idea of what you're going for with the scene. Right. And where you're taking it. Yeah. <clears throat> well, your first leading role was in a horror film, was uh, Night of the Living Dead remake. Is that yes, right? that's correct. So suddenly there's a lot more weight on your shoulders here. And you're working with Tom mm-hmm. Savini. Mm-hmm. And so tell me about that experience. He he was 
a horror icon is a horror icon as a makeup effects guy, but right. he's also a very talented director. Tell me about that experience of being the leading man in, in a genre film. It was mind-blowing. Um, my son was born, Alexander. Wow. And uh, I was working on a film in Pittsburgh with uh, um, Rosie Perez and um, Anthony LaPaglia and mm -hmm. Boris Whitaker. Uh, and we had known each other from Platoon. Uh, and it was Forrest who told me about, he says, man, you know, they're, they're casting Night Living Dead, and I don't feel like doing it, and you look kind of like Dwayne. So Dwayne time. Jones, yeah. Yeah, Dwayne Jones. So I said, you're right. And that day off of Saturday, I literally, I've told this story before, but it's absolutely true. I ran over to Bill Eisner's company, I saw Tom on the corner of my eye, I knew who he was, and, uh, and he kind of went like shaking his hands, like I think it's done. And he literally gave me the presence of, with my passion of grabbing him by the shoulders and saying, "No, I'm serious. And listen to me." And I just uh, an improv for him about what it would feel like in that environment. And he, I could see the joy light up, and uh. something with that connected. And that was a Saturday, Monday. I got the offer. How great! So. There I was, uh, newborn baby. Uh, I brought them. We stayed at some motel, <laughs> 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 Washington, PA. But it was like I felt so heroic, yeah. uh, fighting off zombies. And the joy that comes off in that film is just being a new dad. And uh, I hadn't, yeah, a new dad. There was another offer floating around, but with a less uh, heroic character. And this is the choice I made. Well, what a great choice, and what a proud little boy that had to be from that time. I mean, later on, he would know what yeah. was happening when he got born. Yeah, it was great. I mean, what was I, maybe 28 then? And, uh, uh, you know, we were shooting nights, and everybody wanted to be a zombie. I mean, you know, <laughs> Nick Otero was ahead, uh, worked with him, and right. it was just a great cast and crew. And George was always there, Russ Steiner and um, John Russo, who were the producers of the original. Right. Everybody was on set. Because, you know, the story, when they did that first one, unfortunately, they gave up their rights, and so this the is their chance. The lapsed. They yeah. never protected it. They with, never protected because yeah. they were young. They were film, yeah. young filmmakers. They just made a movie. Yeah. And on this one, they were going to be able to recap, you know, some of that. Oh, the copyright of Night of the Living Dead. Mm -hmm. yeah. When you go into public domain, it's just a complete loss. Wow. And uh, you just lose it all. So what was the, was this the first time you were surrounded by makeup effects movie? All of that? I'm trying to think whether I had done Star Trek already. It was very close. Oh, this was, was like, 1990. This, yeah, I, I may have done a, a, my first Klingon by then. Ah, okay. So I All knew right. I was used to the four-hour process, but you know, Ben didn't have makeup. I was just surrounded right. by authentic-looking zombies, and I was so impressed by the enthusiasm of everybody. We had some pretty famous people wanting to do drop in to do. Will you want a movie? No, 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 <laughs> no I wasn't <laughs> <in> that. <one>. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to have been there. Yeah. Did you know Tom at the time? I knew Tom. Yep. Yeah. Well, but I was still pretty new at that time. Okay. I was pretty new at my job. All right. But um, it was a hangout, man. Yeah. So it, did you have a love of genre before or did you learn it from getting roles offered? No, to you? I had a love of all movies. One of the things that my aunt and I did, you know, this is pre cable. So mm -hmm. they had the eight o'clock movie and the 11 o'clock movie, right? And then the afternoon movie. 
Right. We would always, after our dinner, watch the eight o'clock movie, and because it was only one channel, they would they wouldn't put on trash. You know, we'd see like everything from Bridge Over the River Kwai to the apartment to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, uh, yeah. just just the things that were like. And then she would turn it, my love of film and her love of film, into like discussions about morality. So like after say watching White Heat. She would ask me, do you think you did the right thing? <laughs> and I said, well, there was a few missteps. <laughs> but he loved his ma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Top of the world, ma. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I just, you know, I had a teacher when I was at Trinity Rap. He says, you never know. Your path is going to be uh, determined by the jobs you get. You right. know, and never let it be permanently defined, always be open and accepting. And so, you know, I would I didn't see horror as a stigma as some as I've come to find out as I got older that some people what some people think about right. the gutter, yeah. This genre that we do. Yeah. It's not. It's a very dignified thing that has a very fervent fan base. Uh perhaps sometimes too fervent. <laughs> but at yes. least they're passionate. Well, your your horror cred really hit the roof with uh, Candyman in '92, mm-hmm. and uh, so tell me about that experience. Um, that was that was. Have you had Bernard on the show? On the yeah, podcast? yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, well, I taped a, a video show with him down in Mexico. Okay, and uh, it has Mexico. never aired except in Mexico. And ah, he's a fascinating guy. He's Bernard a Rose. wonderful yeah. gentleman and a friend. Yeah. Uh, one of the, I don't know if it's because I didn't attempt to do this, but I've formed friendships with a lot of directors I've worked with. That's the best What way. you were talking about yeah. earlier, the kinship, the silence, the unnecessary discussions that you have to have, the right. trust. Yes. You know, the, the shorthand, I guess whatever Houston and Bogart had, you know, just. Yeah, yeah, Exactly. Boom, a wink and a nod. So Bernard has become that. And he, you know, that was one of the, that was, I think, the first time I got a straight offer. Well, I didn't even have to audition. Nice feeling. And yeah, but I thought it was a joke. I got a call from a manager saying, this guy wants you to do this movie. I said, was it, what is it? Is this a Candyman? I said, you know, I thought it was Sammy Davis Jr. related. I said, are you <laughs> kidding me? Hung up. She calls back. And I said, what? Okay, so I met Bernard, and he was so passionate. I said, yeah, yeah. She let me have the script, and I saw, immediately when I saw the script, and I saw the bees, and I saw this scene with, okay, okay, this could be something that's epic and intensely memorable. Yes. Uh, and it's proven to be. Uh, yes, um, a durable role. Yeah, and that was real-time stuff we did, because Bernard encouraged me to be fearless, and, yes. then, and then when you have a co-star like Virginia Madsen, it's mm-hmm. not difficult to pretend that you're madly in love with her. Yes. Okay, I didn't have to substitute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, talk about fearless. Talk about that mouthful of bees. They say they don't sting, but they stung they you sting. a lot. Yeah, they did. But we had a, I had a dental dam, so I never never got internal. You know, but right. again, this is 92. Would we do it now? Probably not, but 
I did it, it all then. Be I was younger. Yeah. Uh, fuck it. It's uh, going to be something that is going to be indelible. Uh, we had a crazy guy on set who was actually in charge of the bees. He was a yeah. bee wrangler. Yeah. And he was nutty. I think they all are. Be. <laughs> <laughs> I've had insect wranglers uh, on different shoots as well. And they all are, let's say, eccentric. <laughs> eccentric. Although a little... Uh, okay, nuts. Tiger wranglers are even worse. Oh, really? Yeah, I had to do Beastmasters 3 one time. Oh, my God. And they, were, they had a line. I literally had to shoot a scene. He was maybe 20 feet from me, and I'm laying down, okay? And I'm thinking, so we could? Oh, don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> Easy for you to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with Candyman, suddenly it's an iconic role. There's yeah. Freddy Krueger. There's Norman Bates. There's, uh, you know. Jason and, and Michael. And, and so, yeah, Michael Myers. All, all my of friends. That. Yeah. And so how did that feel? Suddenly you're identified with this character. Well, it didn't take off right away. Yeah. It, it can, we had an enormous reception at the, the Toronto After Dark Festival. Yeah. Sold out, packed, buzzes started, but we didn't have social media then. Buzz, yeah, good. Buzz, good word. <laughs> okay. Um, but we didn't have, you know, Twitter or Facebook. Even. Right. We didn't have anything, so it was all word of mouth. And when the film opened, again, what we, what we said earlier, if a fan, horror fan, doesn't know a title sometimes they're reluctant to show up in the theater right you know right which is sad and we need to trust things particularly if you read and sometimes people don't read reviews i mean at the time we had fantastic film reviewers out living among us you know right and uh uh it took a couple years for it because we also were in that video home video age right where and it cannot necessarily be huge on film but or in the theaters but it gets discovered in the home yes and for horror fans they had that little horror segment tag yeah and it yeah. would go and you know we were first up in the alphabet so yes. we got a lot yeah, of, we got a lot of video rental and then finally by started because i thought it had been peaked and uh, the first time I really got it, I was with my daughter, and it was Christmas, and everywhere we went, people were going, can't even, can't even. Yeah. And, da, da, da. and then she got quite upset and, uh, <laughs> you know, defensive. And then it just built, it, you know, so it took two, three years, but then it kind of just exploded. And then cable came in, and that was a valuable, and it just sustained itself. And then I hadn't even discovered conventions yet. Uh -huh. Right, and then all of a sudden that world opened up, and we have met a lot of you know fellow horror players and yeah, yeah, patrons, and and it spawned sequels. Yes, and suddenly you're you're part of that. Now, it had to be good news, bad news. I mean, it was success, and you became iconic in that role. Did mm -hmm. you find that it limited the kinds of roles that were offered to you? No, because I had theater. I was always been in my back pocket. So yeah. even, you know, my last play I did was a year and a half ago. Uh, one man show, Ghost in the House, about Jack Johnson. And I still oh, have wow. it in my back pocket. Yeah. Uh, but I was, whenever I got bored or the scripts were too similar, I'd say, give me a regional theater gig. And those are three, four month gigs doing nice. great words written by great minds, you know? And yet liberal you've, done audiences. Over, you've done over 200 movies, which is. Yeah, somehow. Pretty amazing. You know? Pretty great. Well, you know, a third of those are like one or two days on a set. Right, right. <laughs> like I just came from one. 
I was in Nashville this weekend. We're going to film called The Reenactment, which is fun. Is it a genre film? No, it's more of a thriller. I play, I parody a, a, a host of a myths and mysteries kind of program. Uh-huh, but nice. I'm like, I'm resentful because I want to be a Shakespearean actor. Ah, that sounds great. Well, yeah. Candyman was the first Clive Barker thing you did. So Clive yes. had written Clive a story was it was set. based on. He was executive producer. Did you interact with him much? Yeah, he showed up twice a week on set and he just smiled, seemed like he was happy, you know. We didn't we didn't really discuss the character. He just did a great job and that was it. Alan Poole was also a producer who went on to do the uh Six Feet Under and all those, right. you know. Right. It's a great well, Clive Tony is an, Richmond. Clive is an amazingly generous artistic guy. He's mm-hmm. very supportive. Very supportive. And um I've worked with him a few times, but you and well, I managed yeah. to do on Masters of Horror, my second season Masters of Horror film was Valerie on the Stairs, which was an original story by Clive Barker, screen right. story. What did, did he ever tell you what he felt about it? I showed it to him in his house, uh-huh. and he loved it. Awesome. He was the first person I showed the finished cut to, wow. and he really loved it, which was great because I'd written the script as well as directing it. Wow. But he loved you in it. <laughs> he loved this Othakai, because... The treatment he wrote, we'd still be shooting if we shot wow. that. <laughs> you know, it was incredibly. It's too detailed. bad. It's you know the people that have seen it that they don't know that we had another element to that character that we couldn't never get to work right. Which was the tale. Yes, the tale yeah. of two tales. Yeah, and if it had worked. You know, it would have been, been even, It would have been we'd have had an action figure. <laughs> yes, exactly. Othakai, the action figure. So yeah. what was in that? What was like a nine foot tail, right? Yeah, like and it really, it just wouldn't behave properly, and right. it got in the way a right. lot. <laughs> we did. We you figured that out in the first, within the first day. Yeah, on that first day, it was like you know, I think we got to lose the tail. Right. It is just not. It's taking a lot of time and getting in the way of what we're trying to do. Yeah. I like the idea of that, though. Me too. too bad that we Me couldn't too. make that And work. the KNB guys are fantastic. Yeah. They, they did great. all of the episodes of Masters from of Masters. Oh, of that's War, great. As well as Nightmare And that's a, that's a series that should have lasted uh, more than two seasons. Yeah, it should have, but it was sold to another company. Uh, Anchor Bay did it, and they sold it to Lionsgate. Lionsgate took it to NBC. And then, and then it was... spinoff, right? Yeah, Fear nice. Itself, which, you know, it was commercials, it was censorship, it was yeah. all that. No, what, but what was the other... Wasn't it one about Masters of... There was Masters of Science Fiction, fiction right. which was a spinoff that was done behind my back, despite the fact it was my creation. So you didn't exec produce that? I didn't exec produce it. I got a small paycheck and a credit on it, but um, that wasn't my show. And that and Fear Itself were two of the biggest heartbreaks of my career, the way they were handled. And Fear Itself, which I, I don't even Fear remember. Fear Itself was the NBC version I of I don't Masters even remember it. And, well, not many that? people saw it. Um, I, at the beginning, I was, but when I saw what was happening, it was during the writers' strike, um, right. and uh, they said that they could make a show regardless of the writers' strike by hiring non-union writers from out of the country. And the quality of the work was not what I wanted it to be. Right. There was interference from advertisers, notes from the studio, and all. And the whole process of Masters of Horror was to give all these directors a hundred percent free freedom. Writing. 
completely. And right. once it became clear that wasn't happening, that my baby was being kidnapped and then raped, right. I decided it was time for me to leave the project with, with a very feel. broken heart. Well, we, we, you know, people think it's all lights, cameras, action, and red carpets. And, <laughs> and no matter how successful any of us are, there's tonnage of broken hearts. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's a lot of work and it's personal work. It is personal. You know, we, if you don't if take you, it personally, you're a hack. Exactly. Yeah. And we don't want to do that. No. Uh, no. We have to care. Yeah. And that's why I'm very careful about the things I choose because I, I got it. And I also, I, I figured out, that you have to communicate with the director before you get it to show up on set. Definitely. You must have a conversation Definitely. or more than one. It, you know, so many people, you show up, you don't know. We're not going to mention any names, but, you know, you got people <laughs> that show up for the paycheck and don't even bother learn lines, you know, yeah. or bad behaviors that is unacceptable as far. I mean, I don't care what you do in your personal life, but like... No, but be prepared. Be prepared and be professional. Yeah. And, and respect your director so that they respect you and the, the, the combination brings out the best in both. Yeah, it's interesting because of the way films are made these days, there are rarely times when you have rehearsal. Uh, yeah. It used to be every film had rehearsal time before there was production. Yeah, table reads and... All of that. And yeah. in television, they'll do it on series and the like. But uh, it's not not nearly so common anymore. Which the, is a shame. But see, that goes yeah. back to the fact that directors are rarely in the room anymore. So yeah. you can go to from a situation where you're cast by a casting director, you show up on set, you get no rehearsal. So you're just rehearsing with yourself, which is not conducive to the collaborative process. Yeah, it's an interaction. It's not just yeah, action. It's can't, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's tricky. Now. We navigate a tricky field. We do. And yet, and we yet, are lucky. We survive. <laughs> we We're are blessed. Lucky. Yeah. I mean, if, look at your paradise that you've been able to create for yourself. Yeah, you know, I mean... This is I, no failure. I, I know every day how fortunate I am to be doing what I love to make my living. And there you I'm go. sure that's the case for you as well. Yeah, I just got, just got a brand new car. Um, get ready to move, finally. Nice. Again, you know, closer to the water. Oh, excellent. So you're a beach guy? Not quite a beach guy, yeah. but just... Breathing the salt water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, in in that uh, Valerie on the stairs, mm -hmm. you were in makeup. Yes. And you had a lot of time spent in makeup. Tell me how you feel about that process. That was that was. Uh, I, by that time, I had definitely done Klingons and worked on the right. Star Trek experience. So I, you know, I never thought of that as a pain in the ass. Because uh, whatever time it took to get fully made up, you're, you're transforming. That's mm -hmm. how I looked at it. So I'm looking in the mirror, I become the character through what you do to me. It becomes part of that interaction. It really feeds who if, you are. It, if you trust it and give yeah. it into that power, yes. If you resist it and say, you know, like in Galaxy Quest, when you know, yeah. you know I can't stand what I'm doing, <laughs> you, you got to love it. You got to embrace it. Yeah. Although I will say that. I did have uh, conversations with the makeup woman on Valley because you guys made me get in makeup and think of like starting at 4.30 in the morning. Early, yes. And I said, you guys haven't figured out a way to make this paint warmer. <laughs> <laughs> and then she's spraying parts of me that I knew would never be on camera. Yeah. 
and it's cold, and we're up in Vancouver. Yeah, and it's crisp. It was quite crisp. <laughs> yes. Well, I I could tell there was some discomfort going on when I would get to the set, and and you were halfway uh, halfway made up. Uh, I could see that it wasn't all fun. Just just that part, I just didn't understand why it couldn't that couldn't be resolved. But anyway, yeah. we got it done, and 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 then we just played, and, and it was rest of it was wonderful. It was an amazing experience. We got so much done in so little time and mm-hmm. and money and that whole. And show. then we then we and then we brought that up to uh, the New York Horror Film Festival, right? Yeah, remember that? Yeah, yep. We were both there, and we screened it there, and it. Seeing a television show with a theatrical crowd mm-hmm. was so thrilling because we always thought of Masters of Horror as a series of one-hour movies. One-hour films. And to put them on the big screen with an audience and to see it play like a real movie was thrilling. It was, it was great. so much fun. It was awesome. It was so much fun. So you've done lots of television now and lots of movies. They seem to be coming together television's getting better and movies i won't say are getting worse but are Mm -hmm. getting a little less serious in their artistic approach it's becoming more about franchises uh and the like and television seems to be getting deeper and more emotionally dramatic Mm -hmm. i better get me another series regular job then (laughs) but what do you feel television can also break your heart like i just got news this morning you know perfect Right after I got back from Nashville and before I had to come over here, the television project that we've been working on for a year, right, decided to not go. I got this literally, got this call at 10 this morning. Oh, God. No, it's okay because you know what? I was a little pissed off. And it's why they they made us wait a year to to come up with that. And it was uh, going to be a, a. uh, well, it doesn't matter because it's not happening. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, but no, but, but, but it's I'm something to you share care about. The, yeah, I'm sharing, you know, so I, and I had given in to TV and people would warn me about giving in to the TV gods, you know, because yeah. I'm more of a film guy and I finally surrendered, okay, this can be a regular job, da, da, da. But I'd also discovered that on Dead of Summer, which is kind of my first series, you know. Right, right, where you were a semi-regular on the yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> but that was great. I had that was so much great, fun. but I thought yeah. it was going to go. Yeah, I thought it was going to continue. One season, one season yeah. and we're done. I mean, so television breaks your heart. Yeah, and then the ones that last, well, I won't mention any names. <laughs> but some of them that are on, I said, how is this on? Yeah, but like you said, some of the deeper stuff is happening. So now I got to hold do a whole reset. I mean, I still have. Uh, I still have, I don't know, two films at least to do this year still, and I got eight films in a can, so I'm not wow. worried about that. And yeah. I and I get my day rate, you know? Right. I'm not working right. for peanuts. Of course not. Um, but I had just given over to the notion of, like, working two weeks on and two weeks off, two weeks on and two weeks off. That's nice. And Yeah, it's great, That's, right? Yeah. <laughs> two weeks it's to do the duck and then two weeks yeah. of just you and whatever you yeah. like to do. Uh, so now we're resetting, and, and I'm not, as you can see, I'm not devastated. I didn't call right. and cancel. Right, right. Uh, yeah. I would never do that if I told you absolutely I'm going to be of here. Of course. Um, yeah. So it's just a recalibration, and that's, what we do as artists is constantly recalibrate. 
You can never predict what your future is going to be and what the next job is going to be. You might be in South Africa next week. I was in South Africa on February. There you go. Came out of the blue. Out of the blue. Boom. You can plan for something for a year like you just did and think that's going to be the next thing going. And suddenly, 180 degrees, your head whips around and you're off on an airplane. That's, That's why I always know there's no disappointment. It means that there's something wonderful just about to happen exactly so one of the things i'd like to talk about that you were involved with that i think is a really important movie is horror noir um that uh shutter film that documentary about Mm -hmm. the uh african-american experience of horror Mm -hmm. was a revelation for me because no matter how you feel and uh, how close you feel in racial politics and relationships and the like you can't have lived that experience being a white man like me. Right. And that was, you were incredibly articulate about that. And, and I think that movie was one of the most important movies of the last year to me because it opened my eyes about things I thought I knew about. Right. Yeah. And so then it opened my eyes too when I finally saw the finished cut and all the interviews they had done, you know, um, you know, look, I'm in this because I love Dwayne Jones. Okay, I I I remember seeing the original Nine Living Dead in a drive-in theater as it should be seen. Okay, <laughs> yes. people are not even trying to get to the snack bar. Okay, it yeah. becomes claustrophobic, and you think this shit could be real. Um, so, and before him, there was you know, for me, there was Sidney Poitier, but I always thought. And I love him. I understand his generational impact, but I always thought the roles were always a little sanctified. And yeah. so Dwayne was like raw, and then James Edwards, uh, a forgotten person that should have been where Sydney was, but got blacklisted because mm. of his relationship with James Mansfield and some other things mm. and the Hollywood Mafia and all that. No, I'm sorry, there's no such thing as that. Anyway. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I knew the shoulders that I stood on. And by that point, I knew I wanted to be actor. And I said, okay, if it's not film, I can do theater forever. Right. Because there's constantly roles and I'll have a good life doing theater. And in some days, I wish that I had actually followed through on that. Because as good as you may think I am and what you've seen, if you haven't seen me on stage, you haven't seen anything. Because that's three-dimensional. That's, And I've gotten to work, I got to work with two people. August Wilson, who wrote the wow. diorama of uh, the black experience in 10 play cycle. I originated King Hedley II, which when we debuted at Pittsburgh Public was a four-hour production. Fantastic. And one of the best letters I ever got, I got a long letter from guys who says, that character was based on me. I knew August, and I felt like I was re-experiencing myself watching you on stage. Can't get any fresh Wow, there. and he's legendary. Yeah, yeah, and That's then I got to work with Alpha Fugard, who, when I was a student, was a professor of ours. But he was a, he was uh, drinking at the time. He would have, and this is nine in the morning. He would have his cabernet and his smokes, and tell it regalos of all these wonderful political stories about apartheid in South Africa. Wow. Fifteen years later, I'm working with him. We were down at La Jolla, um, Manhattan Theater Club, and the Kennedy Center which is wow. my hometown, so like yeah, I got to... Yeah, right? Yeah, so those are the highlights. Uh, so, yeah, so navigating it as a black performer, uh, you know, it's different. I'll tell you what's even harder. I, I tried on my 
social media presence on Twitter in particular and my political consciousness, you know, we live in troubling times. And I, I just try to remind people of, uh, I just remember the time people kinder to each other and just like we, I don't want to use the phrase of getting along, but like we're not getting along right now. Everybody's divisive. It's us versus them. Yeah, yeah everybody's yeah. territorial and tribal. And I'm trying to, uh, through positivity, I'll never slander anybody on my timeline, but uh, positivity first, folks. Get it together. Yeah, I think that's important, and, and that's a great lesson to learn. Yeah, because, I mean, of all these cutbacks and stuff, young people don't even have the opportunity that you and I had or I had as a kid to be able to try the different art expressions that are available to us yeah because there's no financing anymore so you so i mean like so many people say i can't afford to live in new york and you, you got to be in new york a little bit as a performer you have to be you have to be able to walk the street and don't have money for the subway you have to choose doing the subway ride or a slice of pizza fortify your soul um you know it's real life out there it's real life and yeah. you can only be an actor or a director if you know a little bit about real life yeah, a lot yeah, of people, <laughs> their knowledge comes from movies and TV and not from being it. A lot of filmmakers, they're making movies inspired by other movies, mm. not by living a life. Mm. And you can feel that Difference. kind of shallowness. You know? Oh, you remember when John Cassavetes broke into the scene? I oh, mean, he yeah. was, you know, an iconoclastic, independent, invented independent filmmaking. Completely, yeah. Okay? Yeah. His performance of Rosemary's Baby was basically playing who he was and how he got there. It was so full of truth. Yes. Yeah, that's an amazing film throughout. Love that film. Yeah, it's great. So um, what are the performances that you would most like people to have seen? Um, the things that maybe aren't as well known as, yeah. as Candyman, as Night of the Living Dead, but but that we can bring attention to from our audience. Well, um, I did a film uh, called Driven, uh, which was about L.A. independent cab drivers, directed by Michael Shube and written by Michael. It was wonderful. We won awards, but we never got our cable deal. <laughs> uh, Man from Earth, which uh -huh. is on cable, and people that have seen it loved it. Um, those are the two... I also did a Western with the late Christopher Reeve called Black Fox. We mm. did three two-hour movies shot in Calgary for Texas, and we were going to go to series. Uh, it was set, and then we took a break, and that's when Christopher had his accident. Oh, jeez. And it was pulled. And, mm. you know, I feel horrible for Chris and how to, but it was based on a true story about the first black federal marshal in this country. Wow. And so, uh, you know. Can that be seen? Yeah, it's it's, oh, it's actually floating around on Amazon Prime. Excellent. That's after good years of obscurity, but at least, you know, thank God for Amazon Prime. Yeah. Uh, those are just <laughs> a few that really stand out for me. What uh, have you not done that you want to do? Uh, hmm. I don't know. Is I there a role you want to play? Is there a place you want to go? Is yeah, I, I, I always thought I'd do some, you know, uh, what, is, what was that program we used to have with the the job? Uh, you know, oh, go, the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps. Yeah. yeah, it was a point when I really considered going to Cuba. Hmm. You know, doing I never actually did that part. Um, 
I I'm definitely want to travel the world still. I mean, I've been in a lot yeah. of places. Shot yeah. a movie in Paris called Le Secret mm. that was directed by Virginia Wagon and Eric Wagon, who did The Dream Life of Angels, ah. before, which created the noise. So, But I was in Paris for six months. Nice. <laughs> nice. Great. Insane. They work differently than us. <laughs> yes. A little more civilized, perhaps? Civilized and also like lunches of two hours. And right. the last 45 minutes of lunch period is sharing bottles of wine. <laughs> and the first week, I'm going, no, I'm American trained. We don't drink while we work. We drink, <laughs> yes. but we don't do it while we work. By the end of the week, I'm having a glass with them, and everybody's smiling and getting along. And, and the last half of the day is very different from the first half. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they got it done, but they got it done. Great. Well, um, Tony, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you joining me for the show today. And I appreciate and, you having me on. I know we've been trying to get it together for a minute, and you have such a esteemed list of guests. I'm honored to be among. Well, I'm honored to have you here. Thank you so much for spilling your guts with us. Thank you, sir. All right. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.